Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Inder Komar. He is an attorney out in the Bay Area of the United States in California. He's the legal director of Komar Law, and he is working pro bono on a case uh, going after former President George W. Bush, former Vice President Richard B. Cheney, and gang, and we'll name all of them, uh, for the crime of attacking the nation of Iraq in 2003 and onward. Uh, You can check things out at witnessiraq.com and follow how the case is proceeding, but we are about to get the latest update from Inder. Inder Komar, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, it's great to finally have you on. Been following this case for, I guess, it's a couple of years now. I know there are some recent developments, but uh, if you could give people the basic uh, introduction, who is suing whom uh, over what, uh, that would be great. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to do that. Uh, my client is an Iraqi single mom who is currently living as a refugee in Australia. Uh, she fled Iraq in 2005 at the height of the violence that was taking place uh, during the first initial stages of the U.S. occupation. And uh, she is currently suing in California in federal court uh, the, the high-ranking members of the Bush administration who planned and executed the Iraq War. That includes, as you mentioned already, uh, former President George Bush, former Vice President uh, Richard Cheney, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, uh, Condoleezza Rice, Coleman Powell, and finally Paul Wolfowitz, who was Undersecretary of Defense, and who we allege was one of the chief architects of the Iraq War. Uh, the case was filed in March uh, 2013, and the key allegation she's making is that the Iraq War was illegal um, as a matter of law under federal and international law. And specifically, she's alleging it constituted a crime against peace or the crime of aggression, as that uh, phrase was defined by the Nuremberg trials more than 60 years ago at the end of World War II. And she's alleging that uh, in planning and waging the Iraq War, uh, these individuals essentially committed illegal acts, violated international law, violated domestic law, failed to secure UN Security Council authorization, and committed aggression in, um, in waging the war. It's uh, it's interesting. We're coming up on August 27th on uh, uh, what I've proposed be made a holiday, and it's been made a holiday in a few cities now, uh, of the, the date in 1928 when the Kellogg-Briand Pact was signed, which, which banned all war uh, and which was used at Nuremberg to prosecute war, but which was twisted at Nuremberg. Uh, to prosecute something that Kellogg Briand never mentioned, which was aggressive war as opposed to defensive war, because the the ban was supposed to be on all war, uh, and yet it still comes back to bite the United States uh, apparently, because here you have a, a pretty clear cut case, if I'm not mistaken, of of aggressive war and uh, and war that clearly violated the UN Charter as well. I mean, it seems like it ought to be a very easy case to make, ought it not? Well, that's exactly right. But, you know, the the, the problem is one of power, right? So, um, you know, Nuremberg um, was a tribunal that was set up, um, you know, we argue lawfully, but still it was set up by the Allies, victorious you know, countries 
over the defeated powers. And uh, one of the one of the promises the United States made at Nuremberg was that uh, it would hold itself accountable to the same standards. Uh, you may or may not know that the chief German defense at Nuremberg that this was basically made up law, what they called an ex post facto crime. In other words, it didn't exist before the Allies created the tribunal. And the United States argued very differently and said that this was Hornbook international law, that uh, that it would hold itself to the same standards, and that this was this was law that was clear as crystal. Again, as you mentioned, uh, having its source in the in the Kellogg Beyond Pact. Um, so we're really testing that promise that was made at Nuremberg, and we're citing heavily to the case before uh, before the district court, and and then now before the Ninth Circuit, we're on appeal. Uh, we have some great case law for us uh, coming out of uh, the Second Circuit on the East Coast where uh, federal courts that have already looked to Nuremberg and other contexts have definitively held that Nuremberg is binding on U.S. courts. It's part of our tradition, part of U.S. law incorporated uh, into United States law because of the fact that it was uh, so customary, it's what's called customary international law. So, but the real challenge here is not really legal. It's more about holding the highest-ranking members of the previous administration accountable to a very, very serious allegation. Um, and, you know, I think it's going to be more of a question of whether a judge um, really thinks that uh, he or she should be the one to kind of kind of make that precedent here and to say that, that, that judges can, in fact, uh, as we argue, uh, can scrutinize the, the conduct of executives in the context of a post-9-11 world. Um, which, which, which we're really trying to attack and say that uh, it's not appropriate to give members of the executive branch essentially carte blanche to do what they want in the name of war-making or in the name of terrorism. And what is being asked for? What would be the, the outcome of a, of a victory here? That's a great question. So um, from a legal point of view, the remedy that we're seeking is actually rent, uh, damages. So the client was, um, was damaged. She lost her home. She lost her job. Uh, Iraq was a fairly middle-class society, you know, uh, through the 1970s and 1980s before the sanctions hit. And then, you know, during the sanctions regime up to the war, uh, the standard of living in Iraq fell precipitously. There were still people like my client who were able to, you know, make a meaningful existence, a fairly comfortable existence. She was an art teacher in the north, and uh, she painted and also taught classes. Uh, that was all destroyed and taken away. Uh, in, in an instant when war happened. So she's arguing that she's entitled to the, that lost value that that that, uh, that was caused by these defendants. She's also seeking an order from the court declaring the Iraq war illegal as a matter of federal and international law. And then she's also asking the court to consider making this a class action. And that's um, one of the more interesting aspects of the case is that it's a putative class action that the court could consider um, uh, essentially created, we've asked the court to consider creating a, a restitution fund for other Iraqis who were innocent victims of the war and uh, essentially to ask these defendants, not the United States, but these defendants personally uh, to, to compensate people who they harm. Um, and, and we think that by doing that, that would bring justice to these people uh, who were the innocent victims of this time and uh, in addition would act as a uh, as a precedent uh, to prevent this from happening again. 
that seems like a huge jump from uh, you know Bush, Cheney, Powell, Rice, Rummy, and Wolfowitz having to compensate one woman for her destroyed home and lifestyle uh, in Iraq, and they're having to compensate literally millions of people whose country was destroyed. I mean, that's a that that would be an enormous leap for the court to take, would it not? To uh, to, to to open it up as a class action. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, even if the court decided that it wasn't appropriate for class relief, uh, it would still permit the client to, to seek her damages individually. And so either way, you, you know, we're asking, I think, you know, the damages are certainly an important point and, for the client, but as importantly is just that order, uh, asking that the court declare the war was illegal. Uh, we think that would have uh, similarly, uh, you know, uh, Salutary effect on the future to prevent uh, this type of conduct from taking place again by chief executive. Um, and so, so that's 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 the issue that that we're asking for in terms of damages. And, and if the court goes our way, essentially, it would be setting, uh, it would be applying Nuremberg to United States leaders and saying that uh, illegal war making is illegal, you know, is de is, is in fact illegal, and that if, if people who commit uh, or engage in wars that are contrary to the clearly defined international law could be held accountable by the victims of those wars. You know, we had on this program a man you may know or know of named Benjamin Ferenz, who was, is the last living uh, prosecutor from Nuremberg, now living in South Florida. And uh, and he, uh, I suspect, I don't know if you've asked him, I suspect would support uh, your effort. I can't say that for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, he's incredibly disappointed with the International Criminal Court that he uh, was behind initiating because it was to prosecute just this, to prosecute uh, people like Bush, Cheney, and Gang for the crime of aggression. And it, of course, is nowhere near doing that. But this seems a way to create that, to create uh, that sort of justice, that vision for the International Criminal Court through the U.S. court system. That's exactly right. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Perrin uh, a couple years ago. Um, his um, foundation, called the Planethood Foundation, uh, submitted a brief very recently in support of the case before the Ninth Circuit um, a couple months ago, in addition to uh, Randy Clark, the former uh, United States Attorney General, who also submitted a brief in support of the lawsuit. So we have the support of a, a team of lawyers uh, who are all dedicating their time and their efforts to making sure that these issues are, are, are heard. Uh, before uh, a judicial body that can hear this case. And that's exactly right. You know, what we're arguing to the court is that this country has a very proud tradition of, of international law and of, and of creating and contributing to meaningful international law, including the Nuremberg Tribunal, uh, including the, the Kellogg-Brion Pact. And what we're asking the court to do is to examine that tradition, which it can do and which it has done in numerous other contexts, and to apply it to this precedent, which it probably, no doubt, is going to hesitate before it does that because of the kind of the, the times we live in and um, I think the continued pounding on the drum of us living in a quote-unquote post-9-11 era. Um, I'm sure, as you know, um, there have been amazing efforts by other lawyers uh, to hold members of the Bush administration accountable over torture. And unfortunately, those efforts were met with immunity 
uh, from the government and from the court, and those efforts were dismissed. So we understand the landscape here, uh, but what we're also trying to tell the court is that this was a promise that we told the Nuremberg Tribunal to to rebut the defense made by the Germans. The Germans argued that this was a totally, uh, this was a total kangaroo court, that it was totally making up the law, and that it was victor's justice. And uh, if we were telling the court that if if it does immunize these defendants or it upholds their immunity, um, it's essentially declaring the German defense was right. And we think that's a very scary thing for the court to do. And so we want the court to grapple with those issues and come out on the side of affirming uh, the promises that we made to the Nuremberg Tribunal most of the years ago. Well, of course, you have three quarters of a century almost of the United States uh, violating those commitments with immunity, uh, including in numerous wars and actions since the one that you are uh, bringing this case about. But but what has been the what has been the the sequence of events thus far in the case? Because the these uh, defendants did uh, try to claim immunity, correct? That's correct. They, so we filed the case in March 2013. Uh, the Obama administration in August of that year, so of August 2013, requested that they immunize, that the court immunize these defendants. Uh, after about a year and a half of briefing, the court uh, declared them immune under civil, uh, under for a type of civil remedy in December of 2014, just a few months ago, uh, and dismissed the case on the basis of that immunity. So we filed this notice of appeal in late January. Uh, our opening brief was filed in May on this issue of immunity, and that's when we had these supporting amicus briefs that were filed uh, by Ramsey Clark and other lawyers and then by the Planetary Foundation. So there were two different briefs that were filed in support. We just received a government brief uh, on Monday, uh, and we have a reply brief that's due in September, September 10th. Uh, so that's been a sequence of events, and what the court, the court of appeal, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, what they'll be grappling with is this issue of immunity and whether or not it's valid to permit this immunity uh, for these defendants in the civil context. Now, when you appeal to the Ninth Circuit, is one of the judges a gentleman named Jay Bybee? He is, he is a judge on the Ninth Circuit. That's exactly right. Uh, we don't know if he'll be our judge. Uh, but we have, uh, you know, we certainly have concerns if he was, uh, if he was selected as a judge. It's a, it's a random selection process whereby these judges are appointed to her cases, and we would certainly have uh, significant concerns if uh, Judge Biden was was uh, the case. Yeah, I would think there would be grounds to ask for his removal, um, considering if anyone doesn't recall who Jay Bybee was, he oversaw the production of these legal memos supposedly legalizing torture and other uh, crimes uh, for the Bush White House uh, in order to be appointed uh, to a lifetime seat uh, as a judge, he and, and John Yu and others. Um so there, so there's been a, a, a dismissal. There's now an appeal. Um, uh, what happens next? I, I think you were expecting to get word uh, from the government on its on its current position. Yes, that's right. So we did receive the brief on Monday, and um, the government is arguing that the immunity is valid, essentially because war making should be outside the purview of the court, and that's that's the heart of their case. 
in a sentence is that um, the court shouldn't regulate or shouldn't interfere in the war-making discretion held by executive leaders. And um, that's really what the case boils down to. We're arguing that that's inappropriate for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is the Nuremberg judgment, which argues definitively the otherwise, that executive leaders must be held accountable to a judge in order for them to uh, have a meaningful um, uh, barrier to committing illegal wars. Uh, and But secondly, it's an important question of checks and balances. I mean, this goes to the heart of our constitutional order in terms of what executives can do. There's a famous case from the 1950s where uh, Harry, Harry Truman uh, tried to steal some steel mills in uh, the Midwest, and uh, in that case, the Supreme Court held that he was acting illegally, and they and they, uh, even though it was, you know, he, was, he was doing it for the Korean War effort. And so, you know, we argued that that was, or, I'm sorry, uh, the court in that case said that uh, President Truman was not permitted to break the law in that manner, and they they, uh, they authorized an injunction for them to do that. Uh, so, you know, courts have repeatedly said, I mean, that's, that's, that's certainly one case, there's plenty of others, where courts have said that executive conduct in the context of warmaking must be subject to judicial oversight. It's part of our tradition to have judges look at conduct like this. And uh, we're going to be arguing that essentially what's at stake here is uh, is judicial power itself. Uh, this is an attempt, as we view it, by the executive branch to pull itself outside of any scrutiny by other branches of government. And we think that's uh, dangerous for our constitution. You, you've you've mentioned a couple of times, though, that you're aware of the landscape and the cultural context of the times we're in. And, and you know, I think Congress was making serious noises about impeaching Truman had the courts not done the job. Uh, Congress bowed down before Emperor Bush, uh, and the wars are still going on. Uh, and uh, half the public has no idea uh, what the United States did to Iraq, uh, imagines uh, Iraqis benefited from U.S. generosity and so forth, uh, or imagines that it was a, a, a well-intended mistake. Uh, Bush and Cheney and gang meant well, things just went wrong. Uh, you you know, how, uh, I guess one question is what impact you hope this case will have on public awareness, and another question is what the public can or should do to help your case along, if anything. I mean, it's it's often considered inappropriate to lobby courts. A, a, a disturbing number of people at this point consider it inappropriate to lobby Congress. Uh, so, uh, I mean, should we be, should we be, pushing the Ninth Circuit. Is there anything uh, people who support the rule of law in the United States uh, should be doing to help? That, those are excellent questions. So on the first on the first question, yes, I mean, public awareness is key, and as, as, as history has shown time and time again, when you have meaningful legal efforts that are walking hand-in-hand with meaningful uh, policy and activist efforts uh, is when you have the greatest chance for, for actual social change. Um, you know, and, and so we, we, we think that there's doubt, you know, if, if there were uh, a thriving movement here to restrain the United States from engaging in illegal acts overseas, uh, this case would, would certainly, I think, have to be, be a powerful catalyst for having that conversation. Um, but, you know, the times are what they are. Uh, it's still, you know, the questions that we're presenting are still very important. Uh, I think the, um, the surveillance cases give us hope 
that there are courts out there that are still willing to uh, look at these issues in a, in a neutral and meaningful act, um, uh, and, and provide a neutral and meaningful analysis as to whether or not um, there are crimes that are being committed that, that, should, that should not continue. Um, in our view, the Iraq war was such an egregious violation of law. You know, it wasn't like we stumbled into the Iraq that, uh, you know, we're arguing that it was an intentional effort by ideologues to impose uh, a military uh, solution, or not a solution, but a military worldview on the Middle East um, that continues to today, unfortunately. Um, so we're arguing this is an intentional effort that the court can and must review in order to do its job as a check on the executive branch. So depending who we get as a judge, if they're open and willing to have that conversation, uh, there's some chance that, that a court actually conducts or sets something that would be important. Um, in terms of what the public can do, uh, you know, we have we have petitions on our website at witnessiraq.com. That's certainly one way that uh, your listeners or members of the public can get involved. Uh, you know, petitioning Congress is actually something that would be really important. If, if we had sponsors from Congress or if, there, if we had people, uh, Congress congresspersons who, uh, who were interested in the lawsuit and in um, directing efforts in Congress to kind of figure out how to end uh, illegal U.S. overseas conduct, that would make a meaningful difference uh, for the lawsuit. Uh, I worked on a case a couple of years ago involving out the uh, sexual assault in the military, and uh, I had the pleasure of working with uh, Congressperson Jackie Spear uh, out of the South Bay on those lawsuits, and her involvement made a meaningful difference in pushing the conversation on those issues uh, and, to, and to forcing the American public and the American Congress to have a discussion as to what was appropriate in terms of this, um, this virus of sexual assault in, in the military. So I think actually if there's one thing that I could wish for um, to support the lawsuit, it would be meaningful uh, connection between people in Congress. Well, you've got some of the most likely, I wouldn't say at all likely, but the most likely members of Congress there in the Bay Area, including Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Um, I don't know uh, if you're going to get them. I, I should think you would be able to get uh, members of, of parliaments around the world before uh, getting members of the U.S. Congress. Um, but people should certainly go to witnessiraq.com and sign every petition and take every action there uh, to help. Um, I'm I, I'm increasingly disturbed, Ender, not just by I ignorance about the blatantness and the intentionality of the of the lies that started the war in Iraq, but about the lies that are are being pushed now, uh, pushed by President Obama about the success of the so-called surge in Iraq and Iraq as a noble, uh, glorious effort after all, uh, and more strongly by Jeb Bush, who is suggesting that the war was going great and it was ruined by uh, Hillary Clinton, never mind her enthusiastic support for it when it started. Uh, I mean, the, the public uh, seems to be coming under uh, the impression uh, gradually that the war uh, in Iraq wasn't such a bad thing after all. You know, there's a huge disconnect in this country between... Um, uh, you know, what people think uh, about U.S. foreign policy and about the effects of it. And my hope is that with the Internet and with globalization, we'll be able to come face-to-face -face 
or it'll be more difficult to avoid coming face to face with the consequences of, 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 of the offensive and illegal foreign policy that our leaders oftentimes engage in, um, which, which devastate and destroy societies, uh, which kill so many people uh, every day. And, um, you know, my hope is that it, it's just a question of reawakening that sense of um, urgency in average American people. Uh, you know, I think we have to appeal um, the decency that we all have as, as humans and as Americans um, and, you know, light that fire under people to say that this is not something that we can ignore anymore. Um, you know, I, as, as someone who just reads the news a lot, I'm particularly worried in the long term about the, um, the global effects that we have to confront uh, not only as a country but as a species in terms of resource depletion or in terms of climate change. And for me, I, I just don't see any way that humanity will be able to get on the same team if we're engaging in these types of illegal wars uh, or if we're engaging in this conduct that, for me, just seems uh, barbaric and out of a different century. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I completely agree with you. I, I don't know what the, what the right answer is uh, other than advocacy um, and, and, and helping people become inspired to, to know that they can make a difference. You know, my effort started off just just me, and now we have a team of lawyers, um, at least you know seven or eight different lawyers in the United States who know about this, whose names are on the legal pleadings, and who are supporting the lawsuit publicly. Uh, in another two years, that number might grow even more. So, um, you know, one person, any one person, I think, can make an important difference. And then when you when you start to combine your efforts with other people, you can really make an, an impact. And I think that. Um, that's something that we just have to appeal to in people uh, in order to change the conversation and, and importantly, to change the conduct by the government. Uh, I just don't think there's going to, you know, it's going to be a lot of hard work, but I don't see any other options. I don't either. Uh, I'm glad you are doing this. We have just a couple of minutes left, but let's. Uh, can you tell us the name of the of the woman whose suit this is, and and how uh, you're showing that her story uh, was the result of the invasion and the war, as opposed to the fault of the stupid Iraqis or the fault of uh, whoever uh, ended the war, <laughs> you know, prematurely and so forth. Absolutely. So her name is Sunda Sunda Sala. Um, and, um, you know, what we're arguing is basically at Nuremberg, what the court held at Nuremberg was that the consequences of illegal wars must be tied to the conduct that started it, right? So everything that happened, it's a lot like a classic tort case. Um, you know, if, if you commit a tort illegally and someone gets injured on that, in that chain of events, you're liable for that injury. Uh, it's a notion called proximate cause. And so we're, we're similarly arguing that the fact that she uh, lost her home as a result of the Iraq war, that she lost her job, uh, you know, she fled to Baghdad where uh, in 2004 was under, was seeing a lot of influx of Shia militia groups who were um, causing a lot of violence. She's not Muslim. She's a member of a religious minority called the Sabian Mandian people. Uh, they worship John the Baptist, uh, who they consider their, their chief prophet. And uh, so she was targeted by the Shia militia, militia groups for being an infidel. And as you know, she was repeatedly uh, subject to threats of violence. She was shot at. Uh, they tried to drive her off the road uh, at you know, one point. So 20, 20 seconds. Okay. So, um, you know, 
we're arguing that all that happened because of the invasion. If the invasion had never happened, this would have never happened. And so that's how we're tying that uh, to the case. It is a wonderful job you are pursuing. Everyone should help. Go to witnessiraq.com. We've been speaking with Inder Komar, who is leading this lawsuit that we hope will bring justice at long last. Inder, thanks for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much, David. It was a real pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.